the story goes that this kid shows up to, to buds and he he it's his turn to swim so he jumps in the pool to swim and when he jumps in the pool he immediately sinks right to the bottom of the pool and he starts walking across the bottom to one end and then walks across the bottom back to the other end. he comes up he's gasping for air almost drowning and the instructor looks at him and says what the hell are you doing and the kid looks at the instructor and says i'm sorry instructor i don't know how to swim so the instructor pauses for a second looks at the kid says that's okay we can teach you how to swim right and it's because this instructor knew that if this kid had those innate qualities, right? He had the balls to show up to Navy SEAL training and didn't know how to swim, right? He had everything we needed to teach him. T teaching him to swim was the easy part. So, so the thesis was let's separate these attributes from skills. And these attributes are driving performance. These attributes are in the background. Skills are visible, they're tangible. They, they direct how we, they tell us what to do in known environments. We learn them, we don't, we're not born with them, they're not innate. Um, and because they're visible, they're very easy to measure. Whereas attributes, on the other hand, attributes are more innate. You know, we're all born with levels of adaptability, of situational awareness, of perseverance. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of homegrown humans on Neurohacker Collective. Um, I'm super excited to get to speak to a dear friend and esteemed colleague, Rich Dimini, a former U.S. Naval commander at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group and most recently author of his best-selling book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. So Rich, uh, welcome and psyched to get to chat with you. Well, Jamie, thanks for having me. And just for your audience to know that Jamie, uh, you are a dear friend, you're also a mentor. And um, and since meeting you have been such a great sounding board, all of our conversations has led me to, I always learn more with you. And that's uh, and that uh, that certainly helped while I was writing my books. So it's it's a pleasure to to talk. And we haven't talked for a while, so this is a great time to catch up too. <laughs> yeah, well, well, let's just do that um, to start with, which is, you know, I think the attributes came came out what 16 18 months ago something like that yeah so january 2021 so we're at uh yeah about a year and a half now so perfect well so so first of all just how was that ride i mean obviously the the creative act of putting a whole a life of ideas down into you know down onto the page and then seeing it born into the world and people reading it and interacting with it that's such a multi-phase sort of parenting experience um, how was that for you to take your best crack at what you thought were, was the most important, you know, nuggets and lessons of leadership and then share it with the world and then go around the world, you know, having the, having the conversations that you've had. Yeah, it, it was, it's been fantastic. Now, you know, I didn't have a lot to index it against because again, I, it was my first book and, and the book tour circuit was not what it was in 2021 because of COVID. So uh, it just so wasn't full stop. It just, it just wasn't, right? Yeah. So, because I remember being with you on the on the Stealing Fire, uh, one, at least one of the debuts there, and and I was, you know, of course, as an author, you're expecting that, but um, but it was a lot of podcasts and um, and a lot of talking about it. Regardless, uh, I've it's been a wonderful experience, and really getting feedback from people who resonate with the material and and really. Um, tell me what I hoped the book would do to them. And that is when they read it, they say, hey, this is this is a book about me, the reader. Uh, yes, it has some some cool Navy SEAL nuggets, but it's not just that it's it's human nuggets, it's athletic nuggets, it's life nuggets, and it's really about the reader. And so that that experience has been great. Um, and uh, and then, of course, 
the work is not done when the book comes out, right? The work is really just beginning, which is another a lesson for many people who haven't written a book yet is you write the book, but then the work begins in talking about the book, promoting the book. And if the content supports it, building a, building a business around the book and, and what you can do for, for others. And so that's been the, that's been the, the most fun. And I think the, one of the most rewarding parts is my wife, Kristen, who Jamie, of course you haven't met, but you will eventually. Um, she is the executive director of our attributes company. So we get to, we get to now work together every day, which is just phenomenal for us because after 21 years in the Navy where she couldn't work with me <laughs> to, get, to, get to, to build a business together is, is fantastic. So, and, and you get to check that woman-owned business box, you crafty <laughs> bastard. Yes, you do. <laughs> Veteran-owned and woman-owned, right? So, yeah, so, yeah. so, so that's, that's the craft of it. That was kind yeah. of the sort of the logistics of it. And yeah, for any aspiring writers listening in, just know, note to self, even though you will completely swear this is impossible when you're in the thick of it, when you submit the manuscript, right? And if, if you were in high school or college, you'd be like, I'm done. You know, like that is halfway. That's right. That's yeah. halfway and it will not feel halfway, but trust us, it is. Um, and just prepare for the second wind and the, and the, the long, the long hike. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm curious now let's actually get into the content, right? Okay. Because you had a very specific thesis, which was sort of like, yes, there's this sort of mythology around seals, around bud selection process, around all of these things. And you're like, yeah, I, I'm not sure everybody quite gets that right. And that was sort of felt like that, that was the foundation from which you came to articulate the attributes, yeah, right. That the subject of your book. So just just unpack that for sure. us a little bit. Yeah. What did you mean, and what was the distinction between you know the sort of the jockos of like I'm up at 4:20 every morning and I'm busting out my push-ups versus what you guys might have experienced, not just in the regular teams but in the special warfare development group and that yep. kind of slightly, well, actually not even slightly, I would say massively more nuanced um, yeah. and, and specific set of leadership qualities. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, yeah, development group and, and, you know, Jamie, you, you visited us, uh, visited me there. So, you know, and you saw it firsthand. Um, but one of the issues that I was faced with when I took over the training and selection for that command, uh, and just for the audience to know that the, that command, the way that, you know, it's a, it's a command that, uh, selects seals from all the other seal teams and brings them to our own command and puts our own puts those puts that group through its own our own selection and assessment nine month selection process uh, and at the time when I when I took over that process um, we it was about a 50% attrition rate that's normal and as you know any any attrition rate um, for uh, attrition is fine for any assessment program so attrition is is okay but what was not okay is we couldn't effectively articulate why these guys weren't making why the 50% were not making it because again these were top people from top commands coming to our command. And we had things like, well, couldn't shoot very well, couldn't skydive very well, whatever. And that wasn't good enough because again, these experienced guys, they had done shooting, they had done skydiving. And so what I had to do is I had to say, okay, what is performance? We need to break performance down a little bit more elementally than what we're actually seeing. We're seeing shooting, we're seeing scuba diving, we're seeing uh, skydiving. And this is where I got into this attributes content. What are those qualities that say and tell someone tell us that someone can and has what it takes to do the job versus has the skills. Um, the couple examples uh, that I'll give is, you know, I, at the time, and certainly when I, I met you, Jamie, I had done, well, I'll, I'll, I'll back up, you know, BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, which is the basic SEAL training uh, that everybody goes through if you want to be a Navy SEAL in San Diego, California, six months long, 90% attrition rate. You spend hundreds of hours running around with heavy boats on your head, 
hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and, and running around those things on your shoulders and then freezing in the surface zone. When I took over training and I started looking at this, I had at the time done hundreds of combat missions overseas and thousands of training evolutions. And I tell you never on any one of those did I carry a heavy boat on my head or a 300 pound <laughs> telephone pole on my shoulder, right? So, so what they were doing to us in BUDS wasn't training us in the skills to be Navy SEALs. They were, they were, they were teasing out these innate qualities. Do we have what it takes? Do we have what it takes to be SEALs? And the, the other example that I, I, I'll give in terms of SEAL training is actually a little bit more funny. Um, you know, back in, I went through SEAL training in 1996, so mid 90s. And, and, and back then, one of the first things you had to do when you showed up was swim. Uh, 50 meters and and this story i was told i was told the story this happened before i got there but the story goes that this kid shows up to, to buds and he he it's his turn to swim so he jumps in the pool to swim and when he jumps in the pool he immediately sinks right to the bottom of the pool and he starts walking across the bottom to one end and then walks across the bottom back to the other end. he comes up he's gasping for air almost drowning and the instructor looks at him and says what the hell are you doing and the kid looks at the instructor and says i'm sorry instructor i don't know how to swim so the instructor pauses for a second, looks at the kid, says, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim, right? And it's because this instructor knew <laughs> that if this kid had those innate qualities, right, he had the balls to show up to Navy SEAL training and didn't know how to swim, right? He had everything we needed to teach him. Teaching him to swim was the easy part. So, so the thesis was, let's separate these attributes from skills. And these attributes are driving performance. These attributes are in the background. Skills are visible. They're tangible. They, they direct how we... They tell us what to do in known environments. We learn them. We don't, we're not born with them. They're not innate. Um, and because they're visible, they're very easy to measure. Whereas attributes, on the other hand, attributes are more innate. You know, we're all born with levels of adaptability, of situational awareness, of perseverance. We can certainly develop those things over time, but, but you can see levels of this stuff in small children. And even anybody who has children knows that there are some kids who are just naturally patient. There are some kids who are naturally impatient, right? So attributes are, there's a nature nurture element to attributes. Attributes, attributes inform our behavior rather than direct our behavior. So in other words, they tell us how we're going to show up to an environment. So in other words, my, my son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and falling off a dozen times doing so. And then because mm-hmm. they're hard to see, they're hard to measure, uh, they're hard to assess. And so you don't, it's, they're, they're, they're just difficult. You see them the most viscerally and visibly during times of stress challenge uncertainty. In times of stress challenge uncertainty, yeah, yeah is when these attributes come to the fore because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill to an unknown environment. So that was the thesis and really to take that out of the SEAL teams and say, okay, how can I ubiquitize this and say, as humans, what are the attributes that we all could use for optimal performance? You know, what, what, what do those look like? And I, the, the, the list I had in the SEAL teams was 36. I narrowed that, down, that list down to 25 and kind of ubiquitized it. Um, and there, therein lays the, lies the book. Yeah. So, so again, listed as 25, but if you had to pick, if you had to sort of do your magic dad hat and make sure that your sons got three, <laughs> which would be the three that you'd say, golly, th- those to me are the, are the top of the stack. Yeah. It's a complex question. And I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to answer this, but I, there's a caveat we can dive into later on. Um, but, uh, and, and people have asked me to, to, to rank those and I try not to, but I would say it's the grit attributes, which is the, you know, there are four, five, talk about five categories. Grit is the, is the first category I talk about. Those grit attributes are courage, adaptability, perseverance, and resilience. And so 
Um, I would I would say that the grit attributes, I would, I'll, I'll bump it up, I'll say three, I'll bump it up to four. I would say the grit attributes are the most important for any human being. If you don't have an assemblance of those four things, it's gonna be a rough road. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you also mentioned, you said, and, and I'd actually love to get back and just share a little bit more of our, our shared backstory, because I think people might might not be tracking all the, all the fun overlaps, but yeah. um, you mentioned Buds has a washout rate of 90%. Team six has 50%, mm-hmm. right? Which is what green team, like that's the, yeah. that the, that's the transitional move, right? Right, right. Um, so given you noodling on this problem and given you finding that, hey man, attributes are they're squishy. They're kind of, they're harder pinned down. They're, le- they're not readily quantifiable. We do all of these to intentionally contrive things like boat team movements and surf zone, sugar cookies and telephone poles to try and dig at them and get, yeah. to, get to them. And then, you know, and then for, you know, listeners that ever read or f- were familiar with Stealing Fire, um, you know, we opened that book with your story. So Rich Davis, which was, you you were still active duty at that time. So it, it, it was a, a nom de guerre, right? Yeah. But uh, that's you. And yep. you were a major contributor and architect of the Dev Group Mind Gym. That's correct. Right? Yeah. And the ability to try and create body, brain, to take best in class, body brain training technologies and methodologies both for rehabilitation and optimization yeah so and and it may be that this was just a work in progress and the writing and launching of this book is actually now you're cutting edge or bleeding edge but were you able to shift those numbers at all were you able to decrease attrition while maintaining or increasing quality once you clarified what it was you were actually selecting for yeah so the answer is um no, we weren't. We didn't decrease attrition, um, but our that wasn't necessarily our goal. Our goal was to explain attrition, um, and the reason why explaining attrition was so important is because a couple of things happen when you have a top dude coming from a regular SEAL team. I mean, top dude, you know, Navy SEAL <laughs> coming to this, coming to our command, and they go through our process at least for whatever, however many weeks, and they end up not making it. If you sit down that, with that person and say, I'm sorry, you couldn't cut it, uh, that person feels like a turd, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. And that's not a good way to, 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 to exit someone in, you know, into, back into the, into the special warfare teams um, because it's not true, right? So you're not giving that person any reasonable or, or, um, or uh, professional, professionally developing information. Um, you're kind of shucking off your responsibility to explain why, yeah, we just, the, the guy didn't make it, right? But then the leadership is like, hey, why are those good dudes not making it? And if you can't explain to the leadership, then you get scrutiny on your process. And what you don't want is scrutiny on your process because it's a good process, right? And um, and so so articulating it ha- allowed us to do a couple things. First of all, it allows us to sit down and have much more meaningful conversations with the guys who weren't making it and say, hey, listen, um, we, and I would do this at the beginning of, of green team. I'd sit, I'd get the students in front of us and say, okay, I'm going to give you the secret to making it through. And you get all the notebooks would, would, uh, would suddenly come up and I'd, li- I'd list the attributes. I said, this is what we're looking for. <laughs> and of course, no one would know what to, what to write down, but I'd say, listen, it's not necessarily about what we're putting, what we're training to do. The training we're giving you is going to be collateral, right? We're looking for these attributes. If you have them, great. If you don't have them, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to see it. All right. Not a big deal. But now I can sit down with a candidate and they say, okay, listen, based on your performance, I, we're tracking, you have a predominance of these attributes, boom, 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 boom. Now, the, the attributes we're looking for is this list. So it doesn't really line up, which means you're not going to mm-hmm. be a good fit here, 
But all the stuff we just saw, all the stuff you're good at, you can go back out and do some great things in the regular SEAL teams or do different things. And so, so the person leaves feeling more professionally developed. That's one thing. Obviously, we now get to explain and articulate to the leadership. That's the other thing. But really what's cool is that when you start looking at attributes, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way. Skills tell you what is. Attributes tell you what could be, right? Attributes highlight potential, which means we started, when we started looking at attributes, we started seeing the dark horses early on, right? So in other words, the guy who, who wasn't necessarily getting the highest scores on shooting, on the shooting drills, we're like, wait a second, okay, don't look at that as the marker. Look at all the other things that that guy do it as doing. Look at all the other, all the attributes that this person is displaying. So we could now say, hey, just because this person wasn't the top dude on the skills didn't mean that he wasn't the top dude that we were looking for. And that's really the key because I remember, it as, I mean, even when I, in my green team class, I went through with a couple of dudes and a couple of dudes, good close friends of mine were, were at the bottom of the class in terms of shooting and the scores and the markers you get. Those same guys ended up being on the Bin Laden raid and the Captain Phillips thing, right? I mean, they were some of the top dudes in the in the command, right? So, so attributes allowed us to uh, see those dark horses early on. And when we're taking this, when we're exporting this to our lives in our own performance, but especially in business, right? If we're talking about hiring, I mean, who doesn't want to, when they're hiring, hire for potential, pick the people who are going to do the best and be, and might be those dark horses. You don't want to just hire for skills. And that's the point. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so now this brings us right to the doorstep of what you alluded to um, in your, in your introduction, which is nature, nurture, mm -hmm. right? And, and so it sounds like, you, you know, there's a, a somewhat of a correlation and correct me if I'm, if I'm misreading this, but yeah. somewhat of a correlation that fundamentally skills are trainable, yeah. AKA nurturable, yes. right? That That's right. You know, good instruction, repetition, focus on results, precision, feedback, et cetera, et cetera. You can get better, faster at a whole bunch of things. Yes. That's obviously one of the MOs of DevGrid, right? You take the best in the world mountaineers and you learn ropes and safety systems. You take the best in the world skydivers and you learn halo halo jumping. You learn your best underwater folks. You learn, you get that, and then you are actually responsible for that body of knowledge and for teaching other people. That's correct. Down chain, down, down correct. command of you, right? Yeah. So, so let's assume that, that skills are, you know, clearly people have different adeptness and facility, mm -hmm. right? That's David Epstein and the sports gene. That's, that's right. all those that's kinds right. of comments. But on the other hand, attributes, this is where I'm a little confused because my first thought would be attributes sort of are who you are, right? That's like the guy who walked the bottom of the pool right. in the, the original bud screening. Like I'm just going to get it done no matter what. Right. And that's presumably what the, you know, what, what the CEO said, I see that in you, we can teach you how to swim. Yeah. Right. Now, Another step on that is you take grit, you take Angela Duckworth's work, you take Carol Dweck's work on mindsets. Mm -hmm. We are hardwired in this last 20, 30 years, let's say, this kind of cultural moment with lots of HR, lots of huge amounts of professional development, huge amounts of life coaching, all these things, right? There's a very American philosophy that you can be anybody you want to be, cupcake, right? <laughs> you know, especially if you buy this program, take this training, read this book, whatever it might be. And, you know, one of the others choose to drop on wax research has been fuck me it's not very replicable folks right and it sounded great you know but those little change the sentence stems and emphasize effort i mean by the way like, like with our own two kids right we, yeah. we have we have one kid who just came out of the box growth mindset right and one kid who kind of came out of the box pretty fixed right and we were doing we were running exactly the same scripts i mean ironically carol dweck 
before she even wrote Mindsets, had been contributing to Montessori journals about this thesis. So while she was still back at Columbia before she'd even moved to Stanford, we were devouring her research because it was very congruent with our educational philosophies and what we were doing. Yeah. And, and, and yet, we're in our own household, we're like, ah, yeah, not so much. That's right. right? So, so given that, given our biases to want to believe in the developability yes. of people, where do you come down on attributes, nature, nurture? Okay, great question. So um, here's how I would just, so first of all, quick, quick back of the envelope test to determine whether or not it's a skill or an attribute is to ask yourself, can I teach it or can it be taught? Okay, if the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute. Here's the example. Jamie, you tell me, Rich, I want to go learn how to shoot a pistol and hit a bullseye every time. I could take you out to the range and teach you how to do that in a couple hours. That is a skill, okay? Or you Only can say, if I can hold it sideways like a gangster. <laughs> well, that would take a that would take a few more hours. <laughs> but uh, um, now, other or, or you say you say, Rich, I want to learn how to be more patient, or I want to be learn how to be more adaptable. I can't teach you that, right? So an attribute. So attributes can be developed. Um, it takes a couple criteria. But before I get into those criteria, let's just think about it this way. I, I kind of all of us for your audience to know all of us have all of the attributes as human beings okay the difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each okay so for example let's take so sort of, are, they, are they sort of latent versus expressed well they, or they, just they think of them persistent? as a, think of them as a dimmer switch so here's an example um uh adaptability okay um i if, if 10 is high and one is low um i would be about a level eight on adaptability which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it okay Someone else might be a level three on adaptability, which means when the same thing happens to them, it's difficult for them to go with the flow and roll with it, right? They're still adaptable because they're humans, right? And so if we were to, if we were to kind of line up all the, all the attributes on a wall, like they're dimmer switches, all of us would have different settings for each attribute. Um, some of us are high on situational awareness. Some of us are low on adaptability. Some of us are low on humility. Some of us are high on courage, right? The idea is to think of it, and I kind of, I use the analogy from, from the movie Cars, and not just because when my kids were little, I had to watch it a thousand times. It's a good movie, right? But I think the idea is, is sound, right? All of us are automobiles, okay? But we're different kinds. Some of us are SUVs, some of us are Ferraris, some of us are Jeeps. And there's no, there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do, and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. But it, it, it behooves us to lift our hood and figure out what engine we're running with because we may, in fact, be a Jeep that's trying to run on a Ferrari track. Or a Ferrari mm -hmm. that's trying to run a Jeep track. Now, and, and suspension and transmission and, suspension, and tires. Totally, right? totally, right? So now that tells us a couple of things. If we understand what we're working with, what engine we're working with, working with, now we can make some more informed choices. I can choose, I can decide to be a Jeep that wants to run on a Ferrari track and start to say to myself, okay, what do I have to do to be a better Jeep running on a Ferrari track? Um, the other thing, or you could, I could say, no, I'm a Jeep. I should get on a Jeep track and I'm going to be more congruent with what I want to do. Um, the other thing it allows us to do is it allows us to say, okay, what are those based on my niche, based on what I, with the, I guess the track I want to run on, what are in fact the attributes that I might need to work on that are more congruent with this track, right? We don't, to be high on all the attributes is both unrealistic and not a good idea, right? Because sometimes being high on an attribute might be detrimental to your overall niche. And I always use the, I always use the uh, stand-up comic, right? Um, too much empathy in a stand-up comic is going to be detrimental to his or her ability to make jokes uh, at a funeral, yeah. <laughs> right? It'll reduce, it'll reduce your sick burn capacity. It's totally, right? You so know? so just because you're not high on an attribute doesn't mean that you have to be. And so the idea is understand your, understand your attribute layout, who you are as a human. Ask yourself, okay, how does this fall inside into the niche inside, I which, inside of which I want to perform? 
and then say, okay, mm -hmm. if there are attributes I want to develop, then I can specifically develop those ones. Now, next follow-on question is the obvious one. How do you develop an attribute? There's three things that have to happen to develop an attribute, okay? Um, one is self-awareness. You need to know that you need to develop it. Two is self-motivation. You have to want to develop it. And then three is you have to have a willingness to deliberately find environments that test and tease that attribute, step into discomfort. So let's give the, let's give uh, patience. Well, well, and, and just, just to clarify yeah. for, for one sec, so you, so you have to be willing to step into an environment that fundamentally hones it or promotes it. How is that different than what you said about a skill being trainable? Well, because a skill is certain, um, a skill has, a skill is definable. It has steps that you can be taught and you can follow, right? So, so, and it's repeatable, okay? Um, an attribute is, is, is more mushy, right? So those like, let's take patience as an example. If you say, I want to develop my patience, okay? Now you must decide to go find environments deliberately and step into environments that test and tease your patients, whatever that looks like for you. So that might be, I'm going to go deliberately drive in traffic, or I'm going to stand in the longest line of the grocery store, or I say, I have kids that'll develop your patients, right? So, but you have to find environments that test and tease that specific attribute and that, and those are going to be uncomfortable and uncertain. And that's how it's, that's how okay. it's different. Okay. So it's sort of an attribute you can test and tease, but a skill you can sort of instruct and train and yeah just, skill, and, and and repeat oh you can repeat in the same in this i mean i can sit there and practice my tennis swing you know over and over again i can pack, practice my free throw for a throw free throw shot right um i can do it in one static environment and get better and better at it um an attribute okay. can't be developed in a static environment it has to be an experiential environment and and this is the tricky part is where attribute development becomes tricky it has to consistently be uncertain because, and I know you and I are going to dive into courage, but if I want to develop courage, okay, well, I have to pick the context and then have to try my courage in one context and then switch context. Because if I, I, so I always, you and I joke about this. I've always hated heights. Heights always bother me. So every time I skydive, it was, it was tough for me. Okay. But those times that I skydive and I go on a skydiving trip and we do like 60 jumps in one week, right? By jump 20, I'm not really that afraid anymore. I've inoculated myself in that environment, right? As soon as you inoculate yourself in that environment, the, the attribute development gets halted, gets stunted. So you have to switch environments. So, so develop courage. I have to go, okay, I have to do skydiving. I have to do something else. I have to do something else. That's and same with patience, right? You can develop patience with your own kids over and over again, you know, time and time, but you might not have patience with other kids, right? <laughs> or you might not have patience in other contexts. So, so attribute development is tricky and it's contextual. And uh, the, real, the reality of attribute development is you have to figure out those environments inside of which you want to develop the attributes you might be a little less on. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, and then just because you're, you're speaking about these you know, so, so fluidly and conversantly, you literally wrote the book on them. I just want to just for folks that are listening, mm -hmm. just highlight. You, you mentioned grit as one, and you've alluded, you've alluded to you know, probably a dozen of the 25, the remaining 25, but just for folks playing along at home, the five big buckets yeah. you described yeah. is grit, mental acuity, or mm -hmm. basically how sharp am I, mm -hmm. drive, and I'm curious as to the how you distinguish between grit and drive, because okay. to me, you know, like on a, on a casual look, they might seem synonymous, yep. um, then leadership and fundamentally um, teamwork, yes. like how well yes. do I blend or merge with the team, which is, you know, which was the the, the focus of, of your section in Stealing Fire. Yep. So just for everybody following along at home, th those are the, the big buckets, the big five buckets that Rich is speaking about 
when he mentions the attributes. Yeah. So you just said something that's interesting, and maybe this is kind of a a natural segue um, into you know now 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 we're kind of up to speed and we're kind of like now looking forward into the world is that um, our mutual friend and your former uh, colleague at the command, Kurt Cronin, who's now the executive director here at the Flow Genome Project. Yeah. Um, he had shared you know something that I'm sure you've been experiencing as well, um, which is the tragic loss of many former team guys mm. um, to diseases of despair. Yeah. Basically, uh, you know, addiction, depression, and up to suicide. Yeah. And that has been chronic and ongoing. And I think that for maybe the beginning, you know, post 9-11, there was sort of 10 years where there was sort of at least, you know, me reading research and hearing commentaries, there was a sense of like, it's weird that special operators tend to be more immune to PTSD, tend to be more immune to these things. And there was kind of inquiry around that. Right. Like, well, is it the heightened level of training? Is it the support? Is that the very clear fo focus and purpose as they know exactly what they're doing? Is it the tighter support groups? There was a lot of that inquiry. There was like, oh, these guys almost seem exempt, which was kind of, you know, fit hand in glove with the sort of the superhero, the mythologized narrative, sure. right? And then you get into the last 10 years and just sheer the relentless pressure, attrition, and the sort of nonstop nature of a lifetime of deployment without recovery, that started showing cracks. And it, I think it became increasingly clear that you know even the tier one spec ops community was suffering also. Yeah, yeah, and 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 one of the the you know the sort of puzzles I guess that that Kurt shared with me is like, I don't understand it, man. He goes, these guys were fearless; they were courageous beyond all reckoning. Yeah, when it was band of brothers in a firefight, but sitting at home after retirement, right in their living room, they couldn't do it. Right. And it was too much. So can you, and it doesn't have to be diagrammed and chalkboarded here, but like, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Because you mentioned, you're like, hey, sometimes you develop an attribute and it works in a given domain. And sometimes it needs to be, you know, built out in another domain, or you, you might sort of feel like you've got kryptonite in your pocket. So can you just speak to that sort of, you know, from your heart, what, what, what do you, what's your experience? Yeah, I I'm will. bearing witness to this. I will. First, quick shout out to Kurt. Um, uh, you know, Kurt and I are good friends. He and I actually went through Green Team together. He is one of the finest SEALs I've ever served with, but also one of the finest human beings I've ever served with or known. So uh, so tell him hello. Um, okay, so uh, PTSD. It is certainly true that um, no one is immune to PTSD. Uh, and I think that's that's borne out. I think what I used to say about SEALs and PTSD is that it manifested itself somewhat differently in Navy SEALs than it did maybe in other human beings. In other words, we didn't necessarily go out and, and race our motorcycles too fast or, or, or have aggressive behavior towards other people. Drinking was part of the culture, so maybe part of that was, uh, was involved. Um, um, but I don't think necessarily, and again, now this is completely just um, hypothesizing in, in my own kind of uh, assessment on this, no, no professional <laughs> um, uh, backing on this whatsoever, other than just me thinking about it. I don't think it's necessarily PTSD. I think what happens is, in fact, has to, well, it has to do with identity. And um, it's actually a topic I'm going to, I'm going to cover in, the in my next book, um, because I think it's a powerful part of who we are and what drives our performance. Um, we tend to, as human beings, uh, as we go through life, stack identities on ourselves. Okay. And, and those identities come in different forms. I went to this high school. I was captain lacrosse team. I went to this college. Um, I, um, I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm a, 
I'm an author. I'm a Harley guy, right? Whatever those identities are, and and what we don't. I'm a Democrat or Republican. Those are really strong <laughs> right now. Um, whatever uh, whatever those identities are, come with um, not only tribalism and, and brotherhood, but also rules and conditions and constraints. Um, and so, and we tend to then behave uh, towards those identities um, sometimes unconsciously. But really, when we when it comes down to these identities, we we stack the the real point of what I'm saying because we could, we could dive in deep on this is that we we tend to prioritize and prefer the identity that we put on top, okay, whatever that is. Um, now, Navy SEAL is a very, very powerful identity. It's, it, 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 I mean, it's one of the most powerful. And I think what happens when guys leave the SEAL teams um, is you recognize leaving the SEAL teams is not like leaving the Marine Corps, okay? It, when you leave the Marine Corps, there's a, there's a mantra most everybody's heard it, once a Marine, always the Marine, okay? That's not the same with the Navy SEALs. It's not once the Navy SEAL, always the Navy SEAL, okay? The, the, the saying and the, uh, the, the code in the SEAL teams is earn your trident every day, okay? And as soon as you leave, you're not earning your trident every day. You are now a former Navy SEAL and the train leaves. The, the, it, we all we kind of, we, we joke, it's like, a, it's, a, it's like being on a roller coaster with your hair on fire. And as soon as you're off the roller coaster, it goes away and you, it, it disappears, right? That is a huge gap in one's life. And I think um, if someone is unprepared for that gap, uh, they are going to be hurting. They are, it's going to be hard to recover. And I, say, I, I think part of the problem, I just want to emphasize part of the problem in some, sometimes is, is some guys don't know how to build a new identity. They, and they don't have enough of a, a strong enough identity to fall back on. Uh, that's powerful enough. Okay, I've, I consider mm. myself lucky going through my SEAL career because as I went through my SEAL career, um, I had two very powerful identities. One was Navy SEAL, but the other one was husband and father. And I always did, I, I worked my hardest to always prioritize husband and father. Now the Navy sometimes said differently. <laughs> they said, no, you're, <laughs> you're prioritizing Navy SEAL, but I really worked very hard to prioritize husband and father. Now, what did that do for me? It, it When I left the teams, Okay, I lost that seal identity, but I had a really powerful one that I, I, I leaned in on as I built my new one, you know, author, entrepreneur. I'm still building it, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm still building new identity. And I think part of the problem we're finding in, um, in, in seal suicides or even any military suicides is this loss of identity, this loss of tribe. Uh, and it's a tough thing to do. Uh, it's a tough thing to take. And if you aren't able to really put it aside, put it on the shelf and say, okay, it's time to get back to work. I, I got to build a new one. I got to build something new. I mean, think about it. Just think about it in the civilian terms. Think about someone who starts working in a company and starts in the mailroom and over the course of 20, 30 years makes their way up to like executive level, you know? Um, and then once that executive level leaves, like stops doing that and enters into a world where it has nothing to do with the last 25 years <laughs> that you spent. That's what that's what's happening to a lot of these military guys. Um, and um, and that's a huge, huge uh, task. You know, so, so I think my thought on it is yes, some PTSD, but I think a lot of it is identity. I think so one of the things I've certainly tried to do, I'm sure Kurt has too, is I've really started to reach out to all of my old SEAL buddies and, and reconnect um, because there's there's importance, there's power in there, there's catharsis in that and we start to have coffee and we talk about stuff and we can talk as humans we can talk as former navy seals which means we can talk about stuff we never talked about before um we can mm. joke about who we were before and who we are now well in, in in which direction like slagging off your 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 former bosses or talking about civilian stuff 
talking you say, about, we talk about things we can never yeah, talk about. Yeah, talk about things like empathy. Talk about things like mm. caring. Talking about thing. Talking about judging people uh, not on Navy Sealism, <laughs> right? I mean, it's funny. We I was talking to a good buddy of mine, and he, he he both of us are out, and we talked about kind of this this the brotherhood when you're in the seals, and the brotherhood when you're out of the seals. And when you're in the seals, you have this. I, and admittedly, it's a little embarrassing to say, but there's a judgment, there's a judgmentalness about it. I mean, it's, it's a very mafiastic kind of thing. It's like, and you judge people around you like, hey, it's like, are you are you doing the job? Can you do the job? Are you in it? Like, it's all very like performance, like I'm in it, I'm now yes. and you're and you're I don't want to talk to this person because they're not part of my thing. And it's almost necessary because of the job you're doing, right? Um, that goes away or can't or should go away when you leave. If it doesn't, mm -hmm. you're going to have issues. And so now you can look at people in a much more empathetic, open way, you can kind of laugh and be a little bit embarrassed about how you looked at people before. Um, but you can really be, I think, more human and you can feel your emotions more. You can you can cry more. You can laugh. Well, we always laugh. We always laugh, but you can just be more human. And I think that's what we talk. about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and just, you know, to, I think, sort of just provide a, a, a tiny bit of context on what you just described, because it'd be very be like, oh, those are just, you know, steakhead gung ho macho macho guys you know right right but any elite performing community stack ranks on elite performance yeah. full stop including musicians like if you're the blistering guitarist you get respect you could be a total dickhead mm -hmm. but if you crush it on stage yes then you have a ranking if you in the back you know if, you, if you're an extreme athlete and you're hucking 100 foot cliffs doing double backflips yep. right you're kind of a big deal and people will tip their hat to you regardless of the rest of your being and the same with a host of other things, although today that's also creeping into arguably more superficial and, you know, and irrelevant things like how many Twitter followers do you have? That's right. You know, yeah. how, you know, how, how many copies of, you know, how many views does your podcast get? There's a lot of, there's a lot of social media status um, prioritizing and you can notice, I mean, I had the baffling experience of going from a series of, you know, wonderful invitational talks, whether it was at Stanford's neuroscience conference or some TED events or Necker Island or whatever, where it was, I was like by far and away the least capable person there, but everybody there was completely humble mm -hmm. and it was just good human to human. And then I just said yes to like an Austin conference and, and suddenly everybody was posturing and everybody were kind of dickheads. And I'm like, wait, you guys are, I don't even know who you guys are. Why are you fronting so much? And then it took me a moment. I'm like, oh, you guys are all info marketers. You guys are all, you've got your shticks and you have got the kind of hubris or arrogance of your email list or your followers. Yeah. You know, so it was kind of this sort of self-appointed versus truly earned in, in the in the fires. Yeah, yeah. Um, sense of elitism. So so just just to acknowledge that like what you just shared about the teams is is I think it's it's a it's a feature yes. of any high consequence high performance community. It is. It is and a feature without and without a doubt. And 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 regardless in, in that environment regardless of of whether or not you're working with an asshole or not, you're still you're still generating human bonds that are very very powerful. I and mean, there's a difference between the dopamine you get from a, a bunch of likes on your on your Twitter post and the oxytocin you receive when you're uh, in you know in hardship with another human being, and that's those those are neural networks. You and I are neuroscience geeks. You much more uh, apt in describing than I am, but we all know these are neural networks that get forged uh, much more deeply, and they last longer. And so I think uh, I think uh, and there's a necessity to that too. There's a bravado. You know, it, I'll I'll give it. I'll I'll, I'll kind of use the MMA fighter, right? There's a 
there's a bravado people see in MMA fighting that sometimes people can maybe be like, oh, why is that? But, you know, it's necessary sometimes in that in that environment. There's same thing in, in this in the combat environment. There's a bravado that's necessary. There's an attitude that's necessary to to survive and thrive. Um, and that mm -hmm. is not that attitude is not and that that makeup is not necessarily congruent with the real world. Uh, which is why people have trouble, right? Um, and and guys would have trouble switching off. This is old, you know, guys coming back from deployment, guys and gals coming back from deployment, having to switch from combat mode to civilian mode. It's because in combat mode, you're like in this whole bubble of like of personality. You have to be something, someone, somehow. Everything about your th about your being has to be focused. And then you come home and you're like nothing's focused. <laughs> you know, like no one. Everybody seems to be in la la land. And for some people, it was a really tough transition to to flip that switch. But but think about mm -hmm. flipping that switch for good, right? Someone going from yeah. a career now they're not in that anymore, right? That is a huge huge thing to to deal with. Yeah, that that kind of always brings to mind, and I know, and I know that a number of operators really have issues with the film Hurt Locker. Right. right? I, there's that memorable memorable scene where he's going to the supermarket and he sees like 27 kinds of cereal and he just loses it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to your point of like, this is La La Land. This is fucking nuts. Yeah. Like I've been on the razor edge and then you're asking me to fucking choose between Cocoa Puffs and yeah, Rice Krispies. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, shoot me. I remember um, uh, just a quick example of this. I remember, and maybe if there are, if there are folks listening or listening to this who, who have trouble with this, uh, a buddy of mine, we came back from a deployment, one of many. And I remember him saying how frustrated he was because he came back and, and his wife and daughters were all into American Idol. Um, and he just, he could not, and, and the Kardashians and things like that, and he could not, he got so mad to, to, when, he, when he thought about just the, the, in his mind, the pithy kind of minimal, there's just this, this just nothingness that people were making a big deal of. They would say, oh, so, and we were like, you know, his whole thing was like, I mean, there's so much bad going on there. And I remember he and I sat down, we talked about it. And through our conversation, we were able to really think through and come to a real interesting epiphany. And part of that was a story I told uh, to him about leaving for deployments. And I remember, I, you know, it's funny, we'd always leave for the deployments and we'd leave it like we, our planes would take off at like midnight because we'd be flying overseas and just the timing of it would be in the middle of the night. So I'd always, the kids, my kids were little, they'd always go to bed and then I'd have to go, I'd have to leave. And I remember every time I, I just, before I left, I'd walk into their rooms and I'd, I'd watch them, you know, and I did this, all, you know, parents, you know, a lot of parents watch their kids. And I think maybe military people even more. So I watched my kids sleeping all the time, but I remember looking at their little faces and just, just hoping that they were dreaming of sugar plums and fairies, right. And all that nice stuff. And it hit me. And we talked about that. Hey, the reason why we do what we do overseas, the reason why the military goes and does what they do is so that we can preserve the yes. people's ability to be in la la land the people's ability to focus on on sugar plums and fairy i mean to the extent you know to, to a certain extent we want people to be aware of the world but certainly our kids um we do the work so that other people don't have to worry about the work we do and don't have to experience the stuff we do that distinction that reframing really helped him certainly helped me when i kind of talked about it to say okay i can deal with the the 300 types of cereals, because one of the reasons why I do what we do is so we have 300 cereals we can choose from, right? And so mm -hmm. we have the ability to watch things like American Idol and, and get lost in some of that. Now, you don't, you don't mm -hmm. want to go too far, but you know, it's a good reframing technique, I think. Mm -hmm.
Well, okay, and this this will just take us on a on a different tangent than one that I was I was anticipating going on. But let let me push back on that. Let, let me play okay. the devil's out. Yeah. Right. Um. So, in, in, you know, in sympathy with your friend, who was just kind of having a what the fuck moment. Yeah. Right. Like we are bleeding and dying ourselves to protect American democratic humanist values, and we're fighting on behalf of people getting trampled by. You know, you could, I think it's fair to say, you know, like, like straight up malevolence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and especially in Afghanistan, but I mean, fine, you, you roll ISIS into the mix and you're like, sure. okay, this, this, is, this is just not pro-human anything. Yeah. Right. And the fact that I think in 2016 and certainly several of the elections before that, you know, more people voted in American Idol than they did to elect our next president. Right. Right. And, and, you know, to just to, to, you know, again, tip the hat to Kurt, he, he shared a story where Stan McChrystal, right, who, mm -hmm. you know, you guys both worked with quite closely. Um, he said one of the most powerful things that Stan would ever do is that when they'd come back off deployment, they would get up early in the morning in DC and they would run the monuments. They would run the mall. They'd run Jefferson Lincoln, mm -hmm. Washington Monument. And he said it was the most overwhelmingly powerful thing. And, and Stan did this intentionally. Yeah. And he's like, this is part of your reintroduction into our civil society. He's like, never forget what, what we were doing on behalf of yes. these ideals. Yeah. Right. So, so to me, I mean, and now let's loop back to, to your discussion of PTSD. And those kind of things. I mean, se several things. One is you mentioned oxygen and dopamine, right? And you talked about the roller coaster, like the seals aren't once a marine, always a marine. Like mm -hmm. once you're off the ride, you're off the ride. And just, you know, to unpack for folks uh, listening, my, my sense would be, and you tell me if this tracks for you, is that on the one hand, you know, it's high dopamine environment, which doesn't mean I'm getting to eat cotton candy or do lines of cocaine. Like right. dopamine is not simply a pleasure reward chemical. It's a salience enhancer. Yes. It's like this matters, pay attention. That's right. And so suddenly if you're not going to be on my six, right, or ahead of me clearing a room, then you are no, no longer salient, right? Right. I need to focus on the guys I'm actually going to be, you know, um, flying out with, right, and heading down range, right. So there's there's that, and then you also mentioned oxytocin, which again gets wildly simplified in kind of neuro porn, right. you know, kind yes. of pop yeah. psych neuro totally. neurology, which is it's the cuddle drug, it's the love hormone, it's the trust hormone, but it is also overwhelmingly the tribal bonding yeah. hormone. Yeah, and it creates in groups. So starting with mother child, mm -hmm. then lover lover, but then also clan slash pagans across the river, and high oxytocin actually is in soccer hooligans. Mm -hmm. It's in political violence. Oh, yeah. It's in, right, and I would imagine that the teams were juiced on high oh, oxytocin, yeah. right, and it also increases your ability to be horrible to the people who or, or ignore or dehumanize the people outside that oxytocin loop. Right. Yeah, when, right. yeah, and that was that was a that was a, a constant thing you had to pay attention to when you're out there and had a team, especially as the leaders of a team. And I know I, I certainly, me and my troop chiefs and my team leaders always paid attention to this idea of you can again. So I, I think you and I talked about this years ago. PTSD had sometimes a way of showing up in special operators where uh, it would show up as a dehumanization of people around us right because the oxytocin the, the tribalness is you become like hey all i my only job is to protect this this the, these people in my bubble right and mm -hmm. the, the the risk of that is to then dehumanize everybody outside the bubble that has to be very carefully uh watched for and um and uh mm -hmm. addressed and in some cases we've seen quite quite 
publicly that it wasn't in some cases uh, where where mm -hmm. we've had uh, military folks uh, doing things that they shouldn't be doing uh, and dehumanizing yeah. uh, people and the enemy. Um, but you're absolutely yeah. right. I think this 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 a very powerful bonding that happens not only through the bonding of hey um, I'm paying attention to these people who are with me but also my purpose in this group right I mean again you you ask most military people certainly any Navy SEAL the, the the worst fear is not death the worst fear is letting down your teammate right you'd rather die yes. than do it okay um, suddenly you get into this environment where all that is not is is gone. All that is it doesn't exist anymore. The uh, and it's a huge letdown, a huge postpartum experience that um, that yeah. in many cases is uh, months or years long. If someone I think doesn't very deliberately attack it, uh, but you have to know it to attack it. Um, but I think part yeah. of knowing it is to talk to people who are in that same situation. <laughs> you know, if you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you just said this, so, you know, you're not a Freudian slip, but just kind of, you just wove it in postpartum depression, yeah. right? Which is obviously known for women after having a child, but it is the whole complete chaos and mayhem of all of that neurochemistry yes. and lots of just structural stuff, sleep deprivation, loss of body, yes. loss of self autonomy. Yeah. There's a thousand things contributing to that. Mm -hmm. um, but it is also like the, I mean, the idea that you would be experiencing a dopamine oxytocin hangover, that you are pushed out of the nest, the tribe. And, and you said something else about the PTSD effect and, and you bundle these terms, but I think they were worth just holding up. One you said was a loss of, you said identity and tribe yes, as a sentence, but they're all, they're two things. Yes, you're right. Right. Cause if like, if I'm a hot shit CEO, I might have an identity that's lost when I retire to Florida and start golfing. I'm no longer in Forbes. I'm no longer getting invited to Allen and company, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's just an individual identity, but you said, and tribe, which mm -hmm. is that, which is that sense of band of brothers, which is that sense of community, accountability, support, identity. Yes. And that's, that's and kind of a, that's a double whammy and purpose. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. right? And, um, and it's just a kind of, Quickly go back postpartum. You know, I, I don't know if, if Kurt ever talked about this, but there's something there's a, there's a saying when you go through buds called post uh, post hell week depression. Have you heard of that? I, I tell you about post hell week depression. Post hell week depression yeah. is something you hear about when you go when you first check into buds and before you go through hell week. People are talking about post hell week depression. You're gonna you're gonna finish hell week and you're gonna be really depressed. And you're like, how can that be? Right? I didn't know until it happened to me. <laughs> and post hell week depression. You think about it. It's this, it's this kind of, it's this whole process that we just talked about, just condensed, right? You go through something like Hell Week, which again, for your listeners, it's the, it's the, it's the, the crucible of SEAL training. You start on a Sunday afternoon, you run, you go until Friday of that week, and you sleep for about two and two hours, two and a half hours the whole week. You're constantly being frozen and uh, physical. You get, you get most of your quitters through that Hell Week, right? You go this through this thing. Every single Navy SEAL has been through Hell Week. That's the one, the one commonality. Okay. I remember going through Hell Week the day after. So I got secured from Hell Week on a Friday. You go to bed at like at like 4 p.m. and you don't wake up until 9 a.m. the next morning. The day mm -hmm. I remember the day I woke up that Saturday morning in San Diego, one of the best days of my life still to this day. Right. I count that it's next to my kids getting born, my marriage and all that stuff. Beautiful day felt on top of the world. Um, and then the next week started like the Monday and Tuesday. And I remember feeling really. I started feeling depressed and I said to myself, oh my God, I still have five months of this bullshit, right? And you, it, it, you yeah. just, and that, that was the, it was the neurobiology. It was all those chemicals, just everything was flushed, right? You're going through that complete like flushing of all that, like, I got it, I did it, I did it. And now you're, it's all going away. And so it's a, it's a kind of a micro example of this happening. Um, but, you know, think about it on a, on a career, right? It's, it's yeah. huge. Yeah, well, and, and, and a very obvious analog is uh, post-Olympics depression, 
Yes. You know, Michael Phelps has spoken about that. Simone Biles, like lots of, lots of elite, elite athletes are like, I've spent my entire life working towards this point and it required everything I had mm -hmm. and was a hyper, hyper peak arousal state. So, right. Again, the neurochemistry is pumping and dumping. Like I'm, I'm accomplishing the, right. you know, the superhuman. Yes. And yes. then that is clearly not a sustainable moment. We've talked about that with flow, flow science and it's a, it's a state and it requires recovery, a refractory period and all of those things. And that refractory period unmanaged, right. Can feel identical to depression, oh, and yeah. especially decoupled from a narrative where other people are like, Hey, this is what you're about to go through. See you're in it. And it's okay. You'll come out the other side. We did. Where yes. we've got you like absent that it's just the fucking wasteland yeah, you're totally. just staring into the abyss totally yeah it yeah. is it's it's uh it's that's the that's one of the biggest problems yeah yeah well well let me also um run past you just just to focus because i think you know it, it would be easy for us to you know geek on again you know mythologized action stories which i'm sure you you've never had a, a tendency to to want to animate further and i would i, and I think is is besides the point. Um, and we can talk about neuroscience -y, optimal psychology tips and tricks. But to me, I, I feel like this is actually the conversation that I'm most interested to have with you, which is fundamentally like courage, endurance, suffering, dignity, mm -hmm. you know, all these kind of things. So, so let me run this past you because for me, this has just been our working definition of PTSD yeah. is that it's not simply an adverse life event, an IED, you know, the wrong person killed, domestic violence trauma. Right. It's not just that, right? That happens. And that's the kind of whole Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score, Peter Levine, like that whole world of embodied trauma mm -hmm. work, which I think is really important. Um, but it, it's, it's that plus narrative collapse, yeah. right? My story of how the world works and my place or role in it is now upended. Yes. It no longer makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and to me, it's, it, it's generally both because if you just have a hit, but you took the hit heads up and you took it for the right reasons and you understand the whys and wherefores of how it came, you can move through your story remains intact. Yeah. But if it's like, oh, if I'd only hugged my kid when they went out the door three seconds longer, they wouldn't have slipped mm -hmm. in front of the school bus. Right. Right. And they replay that for the rest of their life. Or my buddy got clipped by the IED. I just got a concussion. I'm a single bachelor who's kind of a cad, yeah. you know, but my buddy was about to go home to his newborn yeah. wife and kids. And I can't get past that. Yeah. You know, the sort of the problem of evil, this is Job, you know, in the Bible, like, fuck you, Yahweh. Yeah. Right. Like it's it, that kind of thing. Does, does that, does that track for you? Does that feel like a relevant distinction? 100%. I mean, it's survivor, survivor guilt is one of the ways to describe yeah. it in, in the team, certainly. Um, but, uh, but I think, it it definitely tracks because I think all of this trauma in whatever form um, and the way you react to it in the moment um, may, in fact, you might have thought of yourself as a certain person and then something happens, trauma happens and you, you react in a way that you then look back and say, well, that that's not who I thought I was or, you know, that's, or had I done this, I think this, I think regret has a lot to do with, well, I mean, part of the, part of what you described was this, this idea of regret and, and this is why, though, I think the, that, uh, the randomness, the fickleness, the unjustness. That's right. That's right. And, and this is why I say, you know, you and I know we know because we, because we love studying it. There's 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 tools, there's physiological there's tools you can use, physical tools you can use that help change your physiology, help you go from sympathetic to parasympathetic, help you reframe events and things like that. So we know that there's tools on that. But I tell people all the time. If you are if you are unable to on your own 
start to um, de-emphasize the emotions of a certain trigger of a certain event, the triggers that, you know, the event, the emotions that the event triggers when, when you think of it, get help, get help, get help, help. You can't necessarily do it on your own. In fact, most people can't, especially depending on the trauma. There are professionals out there who are, who know how to get you through this type of trauma. And I say that to people who are even might be in a transition period. And they're like, well, I, I didn't, it's not trauma. I just, I just, I don't, I'm depressed because I'm, I'm out of the team. Get help, right? Because, because there's things mm. that we, that, that can, you can do to help change those neurological triggers and de-emphasize the emotion associated with that and have you move on and take you out of the whole regret spin, tailspin, which is really what regret is. Um, get help, get help, get help. That's all I can say, because uh, don't try to do it by yourself. And especially if you think you're a tough guy or a tough gal, because you come from a community of tough guys, tough gals, whether it be athletes or military or, or first responders or, or even high, high succeeding CEOs, right? If you think you're a tough, tough person, um, get some humility and say, nope, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get help. I'm not, I need, I need, I can't do this on my own, uh, because if you try, it's not going to, it's not going to turn out well. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and you said that one of your success factors was that you always had parallel identities, right? Yes. It was, it was team commander plus husband, father. Right. Now, now teams in general, military, military in general, teams extra specially, right? Last minute deployments, can't tell you what I'm doing. Black box of my existence. You just have to trust me on this is notorious for trashing marriages and, and families. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's just a wood chipper, right. For that experience to say nothing of, I can't even, I can't share, or I mean, a just disclosure, I'm not able to even tell you what's just happened. And I'm not emotionally able to have the language for us to meet and heal. So what would you say was where the success attributes mm -hmm. of your marriage and family? Like, was it how you were raised? Was it a community of faith with a set of higher values? Was it your specific relationship with your wife? Like, what was it that allowed that to be a pillar and not a tombstone? Wow, what a great question. I don't know. I'm not sure if I can answer it as, as, um, as accurately as I may want to in hindsight. But um, I will say, uh, at, at first pass, uh, I was always very, very aware of my responsibility to maintain my humanness in a very uh, kinetic and um, violent environment. Um, and by that, I mean, you when you go through that experience, this experience of combat, you, you will see stuff that is, is bad. You'll see bad things. And you'll see bad things happen to people that shouldn't that shouldn't have happened to. And, and it's, it's tough to see. And when you're in those moments, you have to lean on your compartmentalization to do your job, right? In other words, I can't think about that, right? I have to accomplish the mission, right? Um, that's where I made sure I was, was cognizant. Even when I compartmentalized, compartmentalized in the moment, I still made a note, okay, I got to come back to that, right? And I remember many times uh, being out there and seeing and experiencing something that was really bad uh, having to compartmentalize my way through it all the way to finish the mission and go back and clean your weapons and do all the reports and all that stuff. And, and once I was back in my hooch by myself, I deliberately took time to mourn and, and experience it and experience the emotion because I knew I needed to stay human. Um, and so, and I taught and the guys who I've talked to and I've, I've shared this with the guys who were successful did the same thing. Um, they, they reminded themselves of the humanness of emotion. They, you know, they, they, they were able to 
put themselves in a position where they could mourn. I mean, you know, I'll just be blunt about it. The one of the worst things you see in combat is when things happen to kids. Okay, um, that shouldn't happen to kids. And uh, and to be a father in that moment to understand, okay, I have to I have to do my job right now, but I'm still a father. To come back to that later and say and mourn that as a father would, right? Uh, that's important to do. That maintains your humanness. So I think that's part of it. Uh, I think having a having a solid marriage. I mean, meeting the right person, <laughs> it's it's really part of it. And that's it is um, some some folks don't meet the right people, right? Um, but having a supportive spouse um, uh, on the home front is is huge. Uh, and then I think um, I think uh, focusing in on on that identity when you get home. I always joke, and you and I have joked about this because I've always loved to start uh, kite surfing. I don't have any hobbies, and I told—I remember telling you years ago, I was like, I want to start kite surfing. I still haven't started. Oh, I got kite. hobbies. I got hobbies for days. <laughs> I know. Oh, oh yeah, you had a lot of suggestions, <laughs> and I—I I want to. I want it. I will eventually, right? But I always joked I didn't have any hobbies. Okay, my hobby was my family. When I came home, mm. that was my hobby. I, every a hundred percent of me, in, you know, fully engrossed myself back into my family, and that. I believe helped me because uh, because mm -hmm. it just it just when I was home, I solidified my identity in that position. I just made it stronger. I made sure everybody's and, and I don't have any regrets. I mean, I certainly I think about all this, the time I missed with my kids as they were growing up. But I said to myself, well, that was I mean, that was a job I took. There's nothing I could do about that. When I was home, I was all in, man. I was doing everything I possibly could to be in it, to be part of it. I wasn't going out and playing golf. I wasn't doing all this. I was in it. And for, and I say this for me, for others, other people, I think the, the key is find your own strategy. Uh, but I think this takes a very honest ability to introspect and ask oneself, okay, what works for me? What doesn't work for me? And have that honest conversation with oneself. And I think that's where most people get hung up is they don't, they're not, either they don't take time to because they're lost in all the devices that steal our attention. Um, and no one's, no one's in their heads anymore. Um, or they don't want to because they're afraid of what they're going to find. <laughs> I, I get that, right? But, but I think uh, I think having that introspective, having those introspective moments and saying to yourself once in a while, I just get it. I want to get into my own head and ask myself what works, what doesn't. How do I feel about this? What am I doing? That's I think were some key things that helped me. Well, then it also sounds like you're you're doing. You just shared before we jumped on, right? A beautiful full circle moment where you're taking your family diving yeah which right. i'm imagining i mean you, you might have had a prior passion for it but i'm imagining that an overwhelming majority of your time underwater was 100 tactical <laughs> yes and, yeah. right and now you're getting to share the love of yeah i always i'll tell you Jamie, and again you and i have talked about this one of the reasons why i wanted to become a navy seal in the first place is i love being underwater i just i'm the most comfortable underwater anytime and what's interesting is when you're a navy seal 99 of the diving is in dark murky <laughs> decidedly uncomfortable situations, right? But I still love scuba diving. And so, yeah, if you can blend those hobbies, like I, as soon as I could, my boys were like, hey, we want to get scuba called. My wife wasn't as thrilled, but she said, I'll do it. And so all of us got scuba called. And so we've all been underwater together, sharing this experience and, uh, and sharing this hobby. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, man, that's, it's just very powerful. Well, I mean, that, that, that's just a gorgeous bit of alchemy. Yes. Right. That, yeah, that, yeah, that totally. swords and swords into plowshares. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah. All right. So, so then, if, if you're if you're cool with it, let, let's transition to what we teed up in the beginning, which was fundamentally, you know, my inquiry broadly right now is, hey, it's feeling like civilian life is about to get a whole lot more VUCA, mm -hmm. right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Like right. we're, we're we're heading into some stormy seas. Yeah. And my prevailing assumption is most of us are deep conditioned zoo animals. Mm. We are 
massively unprepared to express any, uh, whoops, any, any of these attributes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and feel free just to, we can, we can edit this out and punt on this one if you don't want to touch on this, yeah. but, um, uh, Kurt actually read that book alpha, which was about the Eddie Gallagher mm. platoon. Right. right, and it's right. and it's written by I think the Pulitzer-winning New York Times guy. It was deeply researched. It, it was not a polemic from a political angle. It was just what is this? What was this intensive ethical crisis yeah. within the teams? And you mentioned that you you kind of alluded to something along those lines, where like sometimes team guys dehumanize folks outside the team, yeah. and and then are able to act inhumanely, yeah. Um, towards others. And so for folks that don't remember that, that was uh, Eddie Gallagher. I believe he was a chief petty officer within, yep. Yep. Within, a East, within a West Coast team. They were blowing and going in Iraq. And then he sort of, you know, it was very much like cuts up the river in apocalypse now. His methods became unsound. Yes. And there was this question within the team, where are our allegiances? Are right. our allegiances to our oath and to our pledges versus protecting and covering within, within our insular tribe? And it was this, you know, very gripping tale of people having to wrestle with that and then actually step up to call out what felt like unethical to potentially criminal behavior. Right. And the thing that I was just gutted after reading it, because at least as, as and you obviously, you know, you probably were aware of this in real time as it was happening, but like as it was represented in that book, um, the, the, the valor and the courage of those team members to step up mm -hmm. and throw a flag on that um, were undone yes. when it actually came to the courtroom trial. And my assumption was it was effectively task switching. Like they had the attribute of courage, honor, oath, right? And they were hardwired to, to do that was within their world. They'd been trained for that, yeah. but they got into a civilian courtroom or it might have even been a military courtroom but it, it, there were civilian lawyers involved and there was right, all right. this kind of shit show situation and then they were sort of vulnerable to being persuaded and to being bent by people whispering their ears by threatening bankruptcy by threatening real world situations that they hadn't been tier one elite right. trained for right and then the, the moment of truth in the final courtroom and a number of people withdrew testimony, a number of people opted out of testifying and, and, and then throw in a presidential pardoning, et cetera, et cetera, which just rocked all the way up to the Admiralty, right? Right. Rocked the Naval system. And, and I was just left thinking, ah, oh, fuck me because every civilian conversation I'm in, right. About hard times up ahead, mm -hmm. about creating coherent groups of people, where you really can look them in the eye and you know they won't break or fold. Right. Right. That stick with their integrity, even if it means their own sacrifice. Right. 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 I was like, well, nobody's got anything better of a filtration process than the teams do from buds right up through combat platoon. If that band of brothers can be pried apart, what hope do the rest of us have? We have, uh, fortunately, we have a lot of hope. And the reason why I'll say it is because yes, the SEAL teams are a band of brothers that is, uh, is very, it's a very powerful um, collection of attributes and, and bonding that goes on, but it's, it's for a purpose. And that, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. The purpose is to go kill people. That's what Navy SEALs do, right? Uh, that is the job of 
naval special warfare, any spec ops. You know, there's obviously there's, there's ancillary jobs here and there, but but the mission is one of violence, um, and so. Uh, and, and, and so that that whole community, and I, I'll, I'll count all spec operators in this, or, or even all military, but I, I know spec ops the best, but that whole community has to be um, looked at through a lens of, of what job they're designed to do. And to do that job effectively, uh, that selection process has to very deftly um, try to find the folks who can do that and walk this razor thin line of, of um of good and bad <laughs> and and it's it, and it's a tough line to walk jamie because i always say you know it takes it takes a bad guy or a bad guy's mind to find other bad guys right and i would say one of the one of the predominant qualities one of the chronic attributes of all seals and i say this in the book is cunning okay cunning is the ability and and cunning can be can be used malevolently it can also use be, be used benevolently right i mean oscar Schindling used it benevolently, right? Uh, whereas um, Bernie Madoff, malevolently, right? So, but cunning is really, if we take the, the judgment out of it, is the ability to think outside the box, just to ask or to look at a problem set and say, okay, are there rules and constraints around this thing? And if so, uh, are they real or are they perceived? And if they're, if they're real, what happens if I break them? Okay, that's what the cunning mind does. And so, and so the cunning mind um, and the seals being cunning, we're always, we're bent on looking outside the rule systems. How can we do something differently outside the rules? How can I? How can I? How can I get a jump on the people who might be inside the box? Okay, we can't forget that we're selecting for people like this. Okay, so you're going to find, you know, whenever you whenever you filter cream, you're going to have within that really fine cream. There's still going to be some, some. There's going to be a scale, <laughs> really good down to bad. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, when it's cream, it's like really, really good and really, really bad. Right. So. Um, but the environment is is one that really dances in that ambiguity of good and bad. What is what, you know, how do I how do I do this job? So I think the reason why I say that is because there's hope for all of us, because we don't we as normal people and even seals who aren't in the job, we don't have to think about life that way. It's not we're not life is not a violent endeavor, right? It could be, I guess, but but we're we have to live. We have to. We have to decide. We, we're 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 in many ways free to 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 look at our environments in a in a much more open-minded and empathetic way. Uh, whereas you might not be able to in the steel environment. So so I think um, if you are surrounding yourself with people who are tr who you trust and they trust you, and the, and again, trust is earned through behavior. I don't. I can't make you trust me, right? I you. I can only behave in a way that allows you to choose to trust me, right? So I behave in a way that allows you to choose to trust me. You behave in a way that allows me to choose to trust you. You create that trusted environment um, that also seeds vulnerability. Now I know who you are. I know your attributes. I know your skills. I know what you're good at. I know what you're bad at. And you have that environment. Um, you will then have in your in your surrounding people who you can lean on, and you'll know um, what they will do um when the when the when the shit hits the fan okay and and i'm just confident because i don't think the shit's not gonna hit the fan in our lives the way it hits the fan in combat so so what we're what we saw what we saw play out in the gallagher case was we saw uh we saw the extreme example of this play out for the public um and what we have to make sure we do is a look at it with an open mind and um and certainly empathy okay um, but then say, okay, that's that's not us, right? We 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 are allowed to be in a much broader space 
and think about this more generally. And I hope that I hope that makes sense, but it's kind of my, my initial thought on it. Yeah. Well, so so now let's take it from within the teams and even the the sort of aberrations like like the Gallagher case, and sort of bring it out more broadly to all of us. Well, yeah. let's, say, let's say American citizens or even just kind of citizens of the world. Yeah. Um, over the last, like like I, I was just kind of track like what do Julie and I end up talking about on our daily dog walks? Yeah. And quite often it's error messages from interacting with other people. We're like, what on earth was that about? And then we try, you know, and that's yeah. fundamentally our dog walk. I mean, uh, we try and, and we even, we found ourselves talking so much about that, just error messages with other humans in the world that we're like, wait, we're upside down. Um, yeah. We shouldn't be noodling on these things. So, you know, so consistently we should be talking about our kids and we should be talking about our work in the world. Yes. Right. Like, like, like yes. that feels generative. Like that feels like what we should be spending our time discussing. And as a result, I've kind of like, you know, we'd sort of playfully just kind of call it the sort of the WYSIWYG factor, which is yeah. that acronym. What you see is what you get, which is a computer programming acronym, meaning like if what you're, what you see on the screen is what it's going to look like live when you hit publish. Right. Yeah. So WYSIWYG and my, my WYSIWYG is fundamentally you know, has become, and I, and I would say I fully copped to being a romantic, a naive romantic. <laughs> I always assumed like, like it wasn't until a few years ago that I read Aristotle's three versions of friendship. And it was revelatory to me. It was like, there's three yeah. types of friendship. There's the transactional relationship. You're in it to get something from it, right. which is fine. If both parties are doing that, um, it's, it's a little more upsetting or destabilizing if you didn't realize you were being transacted. But then the next one is the hedonistic friendship we're in it for the good times and the party you've got a boat you're we're at a party yes, you, yes, yes. you get me on a guest list whatever it would be some form of social climbing slash good times and then he's like and then the third one is the virtuous relationship yes. right we're in it for each other's mutual growth and and companionship right and yeah. i yeah. just and as soon as i read it i'm like oh my gosh i'm so so naive i had assumed right that especially in this day and age where we've had access to all the fun psychotechnologies, yes. we can yeah. hack flow states, we can listen to the best music, we can have all that, we can calibrate our consciousness with all sorts of compounds and chemicals, we can do all the fun, fun, fun things that that party, if it was dropping us into the deep presence, right, I would, I would have assumed, oh, we are all in this to win it, we're in it together. Yeah. Right. This is we, we're like we are sharing a moment of whatever you want to call it, deep time, sacred time, flow state, yeah. group flow, whatever. And that that kind of like that stamps us, that mocks us. Therefore, we're all we're all band of brothers. And then I would constantly experience people disappearing when you got to the hard part. Yeah. Or only gathered around it because they thought there was some high energy there and they could glean, they could skim something from the mm -hmm. till. Mm -hmm. And and so my WYSIWYG assessment these days. And, I, and I'm totally open to be, you know having you push back or, or or challenge any of it. Is I think an overwhelming majority of people are transactors and hedonists. A precious few are actually virtuous, mm -hmm. and most people will, in the crux, like in the crisis moment, will seek pleasure or avoid pain. Yeah, they won't do the proverbial right thing. Right. And for me, rather than that being like a cynical conclusion, it was actually a liberating one. I'm like, hey, I get all that bandwidth back. I'm trying to fucking sort through those error messages, which if I just run the WYSIWYG script, I'm like, oh, that's what it is, yeah. you know? And it also then really allowed me to identify, celebrate, cherish the virtuous relationships I do have. 
Yes. Versus imagining that I'm supposed to be dragging everybody up that mountain, you know, who they never signed up for that. And they're probably not built for that. I know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And most people will seek pleasure and avoid pain. So now feel free to respond to that at any level, including your position on attributes. So let's just say courage, loyalty, and, and, and sacrifice. Let, yeah. Let's just kind of distill it down to those. What, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, I agree with you. I think, I think, uh, and I, I wonder, I wonder how much uh, maturity and experience has to do with that type of, of, of epiphany. I find as I've grown older, I've, I've said, to, I've, I've made this realization, hey, I, I really want to just be around people and hang around people who, um, who I, who, who, who take joy in my presence, I take joy in their presence, they're, they're trusted, I mean, they, they're, they're fulfilling, they're uplifting. Um, and I wonder, you know, and, and as a younger person, that wasn't the case, you're just kind of, you're almost, you're feeling it out. So maybe, maybe there's a maturity factor in that. I think, I think when it comes to, you know, courage as an attribute is a little bit more nuanced, right? Courage as an attribute is really more, um, where do you, where do you fall on the scale of that amygdala, uh, response and where does your, where, at what, at what temperature does your amygdala start to get tickled? And I say, most of us probably fall around the 212 range, right? The boiling point where right around 212, our amygdala starts <laughs> to get tickled. There are some people though, whose boiling point, um, is 190, which means they, they start getting their amygdala starts getting tickled way earlier. And then there are other people like the Alex Honolds of the world who, whose amygdala is probably set at like 250, right? So, so I think courage is really where you stand on that. Um, and it's a very subjective thing. And I would say even the people who are at the 190 might be even more courageous than the rest of us because they're having to step into their fear more often than the rest of us. I mean, courage is literally, as you know, just the ability to step into your fear, right? So that's one. Um, selflessness, you know, selflessness, again, an attribute. How willing are we um, and how, how predisposed are we to, uh, to risk ourselves for another person? Right. And, and, and sacrifice ourselves for another person. There are just people who are more or less. I think though, that as we look at our relationships, you know, that's why selflessness is one of the leadership attributes because, because there, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, we choose our leaders. I always, I always kind of joke about this, like, like self-designating as a leader. It's like, it's like, you can't do that. It's like calling yourself funny or good looking. You know, you don't get to decide other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow. And they do so based on how you behave. One of those behaviors is, how selfless you are. And these attributes stem from these behaviors that allow people to say, this person's a leader. So I think, I think that type of behavior instills those groups. But, but again, here's the kicker. You have to go first. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be looking out for people and expecting selflessness from people. We have to go first in this endeavor, right? We have to behave. The more we behave in these ways, the more I think you start to understand who feels that way and start to, in, in fact, and if you're tuned in, start to attract groups of people that actually are more of the people you want to hang out with. Um, and then loyalty, loyalty is a tough one for me because loyalty um, I've seen, and, and, and the example with the Eddie Gallagher thing is a great one, but I've seen loyalty be malevolent. Um, it, it's you know, loyalty can sometimes be mixed up with integrity. Um, in other words, do the right thing means stick, you know, don't be a snitch, you know, stick behind, mm -hmm. you, know, it, you know, stick, stick with someone right or wrong. Loyal, that's loyalty. So I think loyalty is a, a little bit of a tough one. Um, I think integrity is a better one when you're talking about, okay, you want to find, and again, integrity is subjective too, because right and wrong looks different for the Cub Scout troop than it does for the ISIS troop, right? So, so right and wrong integrity is defined by the group you choose to be in that right and wrong. Um, and that's what you have to kind of balance your stuff. Are you with people who are willing to do the right thing in the context of the group you're in.
Hmm. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. And I think it was just interesting that you, you made that distinction of like, you can't, you can't self-anoint or appoint right. right, as a leader. And yet your entire career was within a hierarchical top-down command where who was totally. on top was on top yeah. and it wasn't your choice. Yeah. So it's neat that you're emphasizing the, you know, sort of the structureless yeah, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a leadership. So what I was, though, Jamie, just to clarify, I was always in charge. Okay, that's the noun of leader. That's the, I was always in a position where I was in charge. You can self-designate as someone in charge, and, and you, can, you can do whatever you want. You can say, I mean, you could put, you could put a, a fifth grader in charge of the classroom while the, while the teacher goes and gives something to the principal, right? What you can't do is self-designate as a leader. Leader, if you, if you consider yourself a leader and you turn around and there's no one following you, I've got bad news for you, right? And, yeah. um, and we all know... <laughs> And we all know we've we've experienced people. I've done. I've certainly experienced in the military. We've all probably experienced people who who have people who are hierarchically positioned above us. And we look at that person and say, "I wouldn't follow that person anywhere." Okay. Meanwhile, you look over the water cooler, and the person over the water cooler has no hierarchical position whatsoever. And you say, "I'd follow that person to hell and back." Why? It's because of the way that person behaves. Right. That's what makes the leader. Right. And that's the important thing. It's a verb, not a noun. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I, I, you know, throughout this conversation, but especially when you were describing the difference between skills, you know, teachable, trainable, repeatable, and attributes where you simply have to kind of fling yourself into novel and uncertain conditions to grow them. It reminded me of, and we can, we can, we can kind of wrap on this, but it, it's um, Bob Keegan, uh, the chair of adult development at Harvard, and he has this very nuanced perspective on how do we grow over time? How do humans do this thing? And he said, at some point, you move from problems that you're trying to solve, right? AKA skill acquisition to yeah. problems that solve us. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which, which, which feels really complimentary um, to does. your, your wonderful body of work here in the attributes, 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance. So, so Rich, it's been uh, a blast as always to catch up. I'm glad we got to kind of double dip on just swapping <laughs> notes on life um, and, and also exploring some themes that are hopefully, you know, uh, a little bit more timeless and, and, and applicable for folks. Um, well, I am too. You. Yeah, I am too, my friend. I think, and I, if, I'm, if I'm down in your neck of the woods, I will let you know. We need to catch up in person. If you're here up on the East Coast, please let me know. Um, but I value our friendship and it's now been... Gosh, we're almost at 10 years since knowing each other. So, uh, so that's wonderful. It's a wonderful place to be. Uh, you are certainly someone who I consider in my circle of people I love to hang out with. So, <laughs> so thank, you for, thank you for being one of those people. Fantastic. All right, mate. Be well. All right. Thanks, Jamie. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. 
Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.